0: Late Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis famously once wrote that, in contrast to the federal government, individual states serve as laboratories of democracy. In his words, states have the benefit of being able to, quote, try novel social and economic experiments without risk to the rest of the country. Although Justice Brandeis was at the time speaking mainly about state governments, the same can readily be said of local governments cities frequently lie at the vanguard of new policy areas, from education to law enforcement to immigration, even to drug policy. What's more, the staggering variety in how local governments are structured in the U.S. demonstrates that cities are willing to experiment not just with what they govern, but how they govern. It is in that spirit of experimentation that Professor Sheila Foster of Georgetown University Law Center has proposed an entirely new framework for urban governance, one she and her co-author have dubbed the Co-Cities Framework. Professor Foster joins me to discuss how scholars before her have contemplated the ideal governance arrangement for cities, where those ideas fall short, and how the Co-Cities Framework sets out to resolve those shortcomings. Stay tuned. CitySpeak is sponsored by Bitoni Architects. Batoni Architects is an award-winning design firm with a methodology proven to successfully guide developers in navigating the complex building process while maintaining an impactful design sensibility. To learn more, visit Batoni Architects. That's B-I-T-T-O-N-I-Architects.com. Professor Sheila Foster, welcome to CitySpeak.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: So first-year law students across the country, with only a handful of notable exceptions, all take the same basic curriculum consisting of five to six core classes. And among these classes is property. And from my very anecdotal survey, it's a polarizing one because either you love it or you hate it. And given what you do now, is it safe to assume you were of the former camp? And more generally, how did you become interested in your area of research?
1: So first of all, great to be here. And I have to say, I did not like property in law school. And it's quite surprising that I've arrived to where I am in my career and work, not just the research that I'm doing, which involves property and land use, but also I teach property law now, although in a very different way than I learned it. When I was in law school, it seemed to me to be a bunch of arcane rules around How you create property and transfer it and how you split and share property and all those things are important. But what it was not connected to and which I become interested in is how our system of property allocation and sharing and rules around that in the history actually connects into a lot of the challenges that we see in society, but particularly in cities where most of us live here in the U.S. and around the world. And so I try to bring that alive for my students and not to mention the history of racial inequality and our current racial stratification and the legacy of a lot of systemic forms of discrimination that persist. And so all of those are very much related to property law, but that's not the way that I was taught property.
0: And these challenges that you've articulated feature prominently in your upcoming book, Co-Cities. And let's discuss that. In that upcoming book, you begin by outlining three different conceptions of the city predominant in the academic discourse. And these three conceptions are, as you call them, one, the city as a market, two, the city as a technology platform, and three, the city as as a collective good. Can you define what is meant by each of these and what in your mind their respective limitations are that calls for the new framework you've proposed?
1: Right. So, we can talk about what's part of the new framework later, but in the first chapter of the book, so my co-author Christiane Ioni and myself Co-direct LabGov, which is a international applied research platform where we've been working with different cities and policymakers and academics and PhD fellows all over the world to both foster innovation in cities, but also capture the innovation that is already going in cities. And a lot of this comes out of work that I have been doing for at least a decade or more around the idea of the urban commons or urban goods. And so the idea of the co-city is the idea of new forms of innovation that we think some cities already engaged in or should be engaged in. And so at the beginning of the book that's forthcoming by MIT Press, we try to situate ourselves in some of the visions or frameworks that we hear about with regard to cities these days. So. One is the idea of a creative city or what I call the city as a market. And this idea is really, and I think former Mayor Bloomberg of New York said it best in this phrase, which is capital follows talent. And the idea is that if the most educated, skilled young workers are drawn to cities whether it's New York or Pittsburgh or San Francisco, then firms will follow them, right? The tech companies, for instance, will follow them. And so therefore, what we have is a marketplace, so to speak, in which cities and urban regions, metropolitan regions compete for this talent. In academic terminology, urban economists call this agglomeration economies, Agglomeration economies are where people concentrate, agglomerate, and create positive what they call spillovers. So, if I live in New York or San Francisco, not only am I near other young, talented workers, but also all of the amenities that we like, whether it's coffee shops or restaurants or parks, recreational amenities, et cetera. And that's in part a description of what's going on, in part, It is also a way in which cities have marketed themselves over time. So, if you look at Pittsburgh and Detroit, for instance, two post industrial cities that were struggling to make the transition from a manufacturing to a knowledge based economy, at certain points in that transition, they both tried to market themselves as a kind of creative city, right? To situate themselves as a place that would pull in these workers. So, this location market. What's the problem with that? Well, we now have a lot of data that suggests that this kind of market competition between cities and regions has produced a lot of first geographic segregation or winners and losers where, and I think we know this, there are some clear winners in this competition. They're the San Francisco's of the world, the Chicago's, the New York's, the Boston's of the world. And there are some real losers in this competition, uh, the cities that are still struggling to attract these workers, the Buffaloes, the Detroits, et cetera, et cetera. Secondly, that there is within metro areas, these very successful ones, as well as the ones left behind, there are high levels of economic and racial segregation that cuts across the central city and the suburbs. And we've seen high level speculation of you know, gentrification and what Saskia Sassen has called expulsions, unprecedented expulsions. So that's the city as a market, right? So that is a good description of what's been happening, but also has clear costs. The second, the city as a platform is really a reference to the role of technology, smart cities in short. And there's no one conception of a smart city, but the idea is that both information technology and data can be utilized in cities to improve urban life. And that can range from traffic congestion, how we time stoplights, to garbage collection, to crime. So we know that data is used by many police departments to democracy, right? To creating as, let's say, Barcelona and Amsterdam have these citizen platforms that make it much easier for residents to give input and to participate in the local governance. So smart cities, there's no one conception. Some of them are geared towards just heavy technology and data in and of itself. Some are geared towards environmental sustainability, some towards more democracy and equity. There's a range of them. So one of the issues with that is that there is no one clear conception of a smart city and the literature documents that. The second is that the way in which the smart city has been implemented, and one of the things we talk about is the failure of the Toronto waterfront redevelopment, which was a huge smart city project that promised a lot of not just innovation, but democracy and also equality or equity, um, urban equity. The failure of that project, many have argued, is... Part of the problem with this framework of smart cities, which is to say lots of distrust of the decision makers, in that case a private company, working with local officials, not trusting those decision makers and a kind of failure of urban governance. There was not enough say, many felt, into what that would be and also not enough trust that the data And other information collected (laughs) would be kept private, etc. So one of the problems with this framework is not just that it's really capacious and it's not clear what values are attached to the city as a platform, but there are real issues of how it's implemented. So that's the second conception. This kind of failure of urban governance or lack of a thick conception of urban governance. And the third is this idea of the city as a collective good, which is really the right to the city discourse. That's the other really prominent vision or discourse that our co-city framework shares a lot in common with. And there it is the notion that we all collectively own the city in a sense or have a collective claim to the city and particularly Those that are more apt to be left out, the poor, for instance. It's a framework that's been legally codified in Mexico City and the Brazil City Statute to try to guarantee certain rights to housing, certain rights for everyone, and a right to collectively decide, which, again, we embrace this idea of collective governance. So love the idea. One issue is the implementation, is that now we know that the implementation has been very difficult to not necessarily put these principles into law, but to sustain them in practice because in part of high land values in cities because of urban agglomeration and land speculation and unaffordability. So even if one creates affordable housing or some of the rights that come along with the right to the city and even strong democratic processes, people are still being expelled from cities in a sense because of market forces. And so the right to the city really doesn't, in practice, hasn't done enough, its critics say, to address those challenges of implementation of what are some great principles. And so out of that kind of failure of those experiments in a right to the city, we have rebel cities <laughs> uh, where there are certain movements, mostly in Europe being cities in which the pushback really is to extract a lot of the aspects of the city, from the market, right, to really take on capitalism. And so that's the discourse that we situate ourselves in and the co-city. So why do we need a new framework? Why do we need a new vision? So for the three reasons I've said, so one, we wanted a framework that addressed the inequality that is the cost of the kind of city as a market. Second, that really took on questions of urban governance, the failure of smart cities and the city as a platform. And third, that dealt with the concerns about land speculation, high land costs, and the inaccessibility of very successful cities where economic activity is concentrated and where people are increasingly moving. And so our co-city framework tries to get at that by, we surveyed hundreds of cities around the world and projects and policies to try to bring forth how the actual practices, how does one realize those values?
0: So you... Essentially, introduce this question for me. What, in a word, is the Co City framework, and how does it remedy the limitations that you've articulated with these three prevailing visions of the city that has preceded it?
1: So, there are no panaceas, I will say that. (laughs) And none of these visions is going to do all of the work that needs to be done. But we have tried to do two things. One is to Extract from the empirical exercise that we've done, which is to really look at innovative ways to address some of these shortcomings of other visions. And so try to map out the practices in cities and the policies that get at some of those. And from that, extract Secondly, a set of what we call design principles, that when we think about a co-city, what are we thinking about? We're thinking about co-governance or collective governments, design principle one, which is the presence of many stakeholders, whereby a local community emerges as an actor and partners with other stakeholders to co-produce and co-manage or co-govern urban resources, essentially to co-govern the city as a shared resource, as a collective resource. So there's that collective claim to the city. And there we talk about the actors being public authorities, civil society organizations, you know, knowledge institutions, and also the private sector often. Second, the enabling state. The idea is that the state has to be involved in facilitating, sharing the infrastructure of the city, and supporting collective governance arrangements. And I can talk about examples of that. Third is we have this idea of pooling economies. So I talked about agglomeration economy. But by pooling economies, what we've noticed in cities is that there are ways to create institutions for housing, for new forms of housing, for new forms of energy provision, et cetera, that are embedded in non-mainstream economic systems that pool resources and stakeholders to create new opportunities and services and goods, in particular in underserved areas. So pooling economies. For the idea of experimentalism, that you can't just cut and paste either policies and laws or examples. They have to be adaptive. They have to be place-based. They have to be iterative. And so the Co City framework is an experimental one. It's an adaptive one. And lastly, we noticed that a number of features of, and this really speaks to the failure of some of the smart city experiments and framework, that a feature of a lot of the innovation in cities involves what we call tech justice, making sure that communities not only have access to technology and technological platforms, but that in many instances, they co-own or co-manage them.
0: In the first design principle you articulate, well, really threading throughout all the five principles, you emphasize repeatedly this notion of collectivity and a collective claim and collaborative governance. And fundamental to that idea is a theory you've been developing for many years now, which is that the city can be best understood as a commons, something you hinted at at the beginning of our conversation. But before we understand what you mean by the city as a commons, I think it's important first to explain the traditional meaning of the term commons. And I know this is an enormous topic dating as far back as the Middle Ages, but to the extent you're able, can you describe what the commons is, how it's evolved over time and how that notion plays into our contemporary legal system and into your new co-city framework?
1: Yes. So... The way I think about the commons and most contemporary commentators and theorists you, is that one would situate it between the public and private, right? So if you think about private property, even shared like a condominium or a house or a private institution, right? And public could be museums and everything that the state owns, Right. Many would situate the commons as in between that. Now, traditionally, the commons in many circumstances was called unowned. You know, no one owns it. So the typical commons is the air and the ocean, right? These are things that are truly a common good. (laughs) No one has an ownership over them. We all collectively have access to them and you can't exclude anybody from them. Garrett Hardin popularized the idea of the tragedy of the commons and He talked about a kind of open pasture on which herdsmen brought their cows and all of the cows ate as much as they wanted. And that eventually, because you couldn't exclude everyone and it was open to everyone, that what you got was the kind of tragedy that either complete destruction or degradation such that everyone loses. Right. And so that might explain something like climate change. Right. The classic tragedy. So that's one conception of the commons, is this idea that it's unowned goods. So we might think of the roadways, right, or mountains, for instance. Another conception that was in some tension with Hardin's is the Nobel Prize winner, Eleanor Ostrom, who found that, in fact, there are communities around the world, mainly in rural settings. In places like Indonesia and Japan, but also here in which they are managing what we call these commons, these open access where no one owns them, but they actually create rules of access and they take units out of them. But they do so in a sustainable fashion and in situations where you don't need to privatize the resource in order to protect it from exhaustion. Nor do you need the state to take full control and manage it, let's say, through an agency like the Environmental Protection Agency. And so that there were these institutions between the state, right, and private property in which people can self-manage, self-govern, even property that everyone shares. And the everyone could be a community, a particular community, or it could be the world. And so we have... And I have been writing and my co-author first separately and then together the idea of the city as a commons kind of thinking through the ways that in the not in the rural context in which most of the idea of the commons comes out of the natural resources context. But are there commons in cities in dense environments that are very diverse and in which you have a lot of different kinds of resources and an overlay of the state, but also many other entities that impact how goods and services are created and get distributed? So the answer is yes. If we think about park conservancies, if we think about business improvement districts, if we think about small neighborhood parks that are co-managed by residents around them, and many city programs that enable those So there are kind of traditional commons or commons-based institutions in cities that allow for this kind of collaborative or collective governance of multiple actors, including the state. So many, many years ago, we started there. But since we've tried to theorize what does it mean for urban resources or the infrastructure of the city, that could be the roads, it could be the cables, buildings to be thought about as a common resource. And where we landed, and it's part of the idea of the co-city, is that it really is the infrastructure of the city. So for instance, if we want to co-create or construct a common good such as affordable housing that stays affordable, what you do need is access to the infrastructure of the city. That could be vacant buildings. That could be vacant lands. You need a collaborative or pooling economy whereby someone has to develop that, right? It could be that the city transfers into a land trust, for instance, that will hold it affordable, land that has fallen into its hands, either because there's vacancy or tax liens on properties and people have abandoned it. But you have private and public money that helps to develop this into an urban village, as happened in Dudley Street outside of Boston, where you have housing, where you have recreational space, where you have other goods for the community, and that keeps it affordable. So in that sense, it's really the infrastructure of the cities that is a common good that we think communities, in particular those with less goods, should have access to. And in that sense, it's a common Right, access to construct other goods. It could be housing, it could be a broadband network that's co governed as we have worked on in Harlem to create a community based, co govern kind of micro network that helps to bridge the digital divide in an otherwise smart city, but in which one in three residents don't have access to broadband in their home. So I hope that's clear.
0: Throughout this conversation, you've emphasized your use of empirical evidence in developing your co-city framework. And your scholarship on this subject is somewhat unique in that rather than advancing pure theoretical concepts, you've actually taken your ideas and put them into practice. You and your co-author and colleague Christian Iayone began experimenting with how the framework could be translated into actual model legislation, beginning, I believe, in Bologna, Italy, before spreading to cities all across Europe, which have implemented similar regulations, and I believe increasingly now in the U.S. Tell us about this experience. What did these regulations contain? How far have they spread? And what has been their practical effect?
1: Sure. I'll try to keep this short, (laughs) but I'll give it to you in pieces, and then you can ask me more questions. It's true that we started in Bologna in part because Bologna expressed an idea. The city, working with my colleague and others in Italy, expressed a desire for a new model, right, of city, not a smart city necessarily, or other vision, but more what it called a collaborative city, in part because of the region where Bologna is. It has a long history of cooperativism. So my colleague was asked and then brought me in to help draft a piece of legislation for the care of the urban commons, right? And the regulation would, first of all, define urban commons very broadly. It could be digital assets, recreational assets, housing, anything. And what it offered was what's called a pact of collaboration uh, between the city of Bologna and any group of citizens or group of stakeholders that wanted to take part of the infrastructure of the city. It could be a plaza. It could be public housing that was in decline. It could be a school that was no longer being utilized. And to enter into a pact of collaboration in which the city would transfer resources to this collaborative group, this collectivity, to regenerate and to take care of that so they could improve it or turn it into something else for the people that use it. It could be a specific community. So one project was in an immigrant community of African immigrants uh, around housing. Many of them were around kind of small piazzas and varied from there. And so Bologna put this regulation in place, and to date has entered into hundreds of these packs of collaboration. And we have since gone back in, and at least a few years ago, as of a few years ago, studied and reported back on whether the packs of collaboration that it entered into mapped onto the original idea of urban commons. And in some cases, yes, and in some cases, no. Anyway, this became a cost uh, of sort in the sense that what happened right afterwards is that many Italian cities just copied and pasted the regulation. And so these regulations flourished all over And some other European cities, didn't exactly cut and paste, but took the regulation and adapted it. That's not something that we agree with or suggest as part of our model, because again, one of the principles is experimentalism and adaptation, or that it's adaptive. And sometimes you don't need a law or a law that another city has put in place. What was obscured in the cutting and pasting is that the that experiment in Bologna was much more expansive than just this piece of law. In fact, there were a bunch of neighborhood, let's say, Collabs or spaces, co-design spaces in which city officials were bringing together different actors to imagine and design and then to put in place some of the projects that may end up in a pact of collaboration. And that those grounds of experimentation were very important to the bottom-up nature of our model in the project. So it's not just about a piece of regulation and then contracts, basically. The other thing that I think doesn't get picked up on is that as a result of that experiment, the city created a new office, the Office of Civic Imagination outside of City Hall in one of the neighborhoods. So why is this important? Because one of the reasons we have design principles and not sort of here's how you do this, you know, put in place this regulation, adopt this kind of institution, et cetera, is that this looks different in different places. And so for instance when there was a experiment in Costa Rica and now we have in Hong Kong a lab gov partnership with folks there and I work with again cities here not just in New York where they created a New York City collapse the office of technology technology innovators and companies go out to a lot of communities that lacked a lot of the goods and resources that I've talked about and to let those projects be led by those communities but to bring them together with these other actors in a kind of collab setting and then a project that I'm working with in Baton Rouge with their economic development authority. All of these things are very adaptive right these projects so yes we've experimented with the co-city framework by taking the principles in what we call as a co-city cycle, which starts with low stakes talk or what Eleanor Ostrom called cheap talk with the participants, the potential collaborators and stakeholders, a mapping process, mapping not just of who are the important actors, but what are the resources and assets available in a community that you want to work on. To a practicing that you build trust by putting some small stakes things in practice. It could be a community garden. It could be something else to prototyping and then to putting that in place and then coming back to evaluate and finally to adopting a policy or a set of practices. So when we experiment, it's both let's have the principles in mind, right, the design principles, but also the idea that it is adaptive, it is experimentalism, and that we go through a process to figure out what will work in a particular place.
0: Professor Foster, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to CitySpeak with Max masuda CitySpeak is produced in partnership with Urbanized Media, with music and sound production by Greg Gordon-Smith and Source Code Creative Media be sure to visit urbanize.city. Now featuring commercial real estate news in Atlanta, Austin, Chicago, Detroit, LA, and New York.